Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello. Uh, we're going to do one of those shows today that is uh, kind of s- divided up into three completely freestanding segments. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about a piece that our friend David Folkenflik did for Public Radio in 2009, as I was actually preparing to begin the Public Radio career point of my life. Uh, but it was all about sort of what would happen to a city like Hartford and, and a greater community like uh, Connecticut if uh, the Hartford Current, the oldest daily uh, continuously published newspaper in America vanished from the earth. Uh, and since then, David has had the chance to reflect on how close that has come to being a, a reality. So we're going to uh, get back in touch with David about that. We're also going to talk uh, near the end of the show about the invention of the wheelie suitcase and how it's attributed to a man, but in fact existed for and among women uh, long before this. Part of an overall pattern that things don't exist or seem important unless men are doing them and using them, uh, and that there's this kind of entire secret history of objects and inventions that, uh, in fact, were done by women for women and and thus uh, less celebrated. So all of that is to come, but right now we are going to talk about something that you hear about a lot these days, maybe more than you ever have before, and that is the idea of a parliamentarian in Congress, a parliamentarian in the Senate, parliamentarian in the House. The Senate one is the one you hear a, a lot about. Uh, but, you know, it's maybe not a word that or an idea that is all that familiar to you. Certainly, when you think of a parliamentarian, uh, you think, first of all, about parliamentary procedure. I was going to pull a clip from The Wire when Stringer Bell, who was kind of the criminal genius on The Wire, and started going to community college and learning a lot about kind of the rest of the world. He attempted to institute Robert's Rules of Order in uh, meetings of this, you know, criminal conspiracy to sell drugs. Uh, and, And there was actually, he actually had a parliamentarian. There was a guy, a member of the gang, who would sit there with a copy of Robert's Rules of Order uh, and try to make sure everybody stood up when they said stuff and, you know, waited to be recognized and things like that. But you can't pull the clip because every other word is a bad word. So, um, but I did want to sort of say that obviously the word parliamentarian contains the notion of parliament. uh, And certainly the British parliament is a place where they really, really know how to conduct the business of a deliberative body in an orderly fashion. Let's hear what that sounds like. All right, so the Senate parliamentarian actually has a slightly different job. And here to explain us to us what that is, uh, who the person is, uh, and why that person is kind of on the hot seat uh, in certain situations uh, is Alana Shore, uh, Congress editor at Politico. And it must be said, former Jeopardy champion. Uh, I think that's something that you carry with you through life. Uh, I certainly would if I were. Uh, so Alana Shore, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's good to be here. That's a great intro. So um, so the Senate parliamentarian, we should first of all say, 
is not really necessarily relying on some kind of outside guide or Bible like Robert's Rules of Order. As I understand it, the Senate parliamentarian is basically making sure that the Senate follows its own rules. The Senate's kind of more interested in itself and how it typically does things than it is in somebody else's idea of how it should do things. Is, is that fair? That's fair, but it's important to note, though, that the parliamentarian does have a Bible of sorts, depending on the assessment he or she is making. And, and this particular season, we're looking at, you know, the Budget Control Act of 1973, um, some revisions made in 1980. Basically, she, in this case, is looking at federal law governing the quote-unquote budget reconciliation process. I hate that term. What it actually means is how you can force some stuff past the Senate filibuster, <laughs> And she's not pulling out of thin air. She's kind of relying, and she's a skilled lawyer, on her reading of that law. Right. So just to sharpen up the point you were just making, uh, reconciliation has relatively little to do with getting anybody to reconcile with anybody else. But it is a type of legislation that can pass the Senate with 50 votes plus the vice president, as opposed to everything else being kind of fair game for a filibuster, correct? That's very correct. And, you know, without getting too far into the weeds, in order for something to be included in the reconciliation bill, it has to have a significant enough impact on federal inlays and outlays, budget spending, you know, balancing the government's checkbook, what have you. And that impact can't be outweighed as let's take something like immigration. It can't be outweighed by a policy impact. It's got to be fiscal first. So that's kind of the principles that the Senate parliamentarian is using right now. Right. And, and as you say, those those principles can exist in a hard and fast state in federal legislation. But it's also, I think, very much, and I mean, I don't know that much about this, but from what I can tell, it also is very much about the what we might call folkways of the Senate. There is something called the bird bath, right? B-Y-R-D, uh, which refers to, in fact, the senator from West Virginia, Robert Byrd. And I mean, a lot of this has to do with kind of what he thought reconciliation was. Tell us more about that. Right. Well, essentially, when Senator Byrd was alive and very influential, the dean of the Senate, let alone the Democratic Party, you know, he essentially edited the previous rules for, for approving these budgetary bills and created reconciliation as we know it around 1980 by saying, OK, you can do this without facing a filibuster, but you have to not just cram anything in there. It's got to be, as I explained, significantly impactful on federal inlays and outlays to a degree that outweighs other factors. So you can't really pass, say, a gun control measure under reconciliation. The parliamentarian isn't going to let that fly because it, it might tangentially affect federal spending, but that's not its principal purpose. And as I mentioned, you saw immigration reform meet the same fate when Democrats tried to include it. So, that, so that's the birdbath, right? The birdbath is essentially that test. Are you principally affecting the federal budget or is that just a side effect? Right. So let's hear uh, how Chuck Schumer, a majority leader of the Senate, responded when, in fact, uh, as you say, immigration reform failed to make its way cleanly through the birdbath. First, I want to say a word about uh, yesterday, uh, about the news we see received last night from the parliamentarian. Last night's ruling was extremely disappointing. It saddened me. It frustrated me. It angered me because so many lives are at stake. But, make no mistake, the fight continues. Senate Democrats have prepared alternative proposals. We'll be holding additional meetings with the parliamentarian in the coming days. So here we have, you know, one of the more powerful people in Washington. And we, it could just as easily have been Mitch McConnell, who 
also is a very powerful person, who nonetheless has been brought to heel and, and placed in a position where he is clearly deeply unhappy about an outcome, but powerless to do very much about it by somebody whom whose name most people would not recognize. I don't know, maybe you can expand on that for us. Yeah, I mean, certainly to the members of parties that are getting hit by the parliamentarian. And let's be clear, this has happened to Republicans before in the past. It's yes. just Democrats turning the barrel this year. It's frustrating, right? Because you feel like, wait a second, who is this person who's determining what can and can't fly? And Republicans had previously fired a parliamentarian in the past for issuing uh, a ruling they didn't agree with. But there's a reason that Democrats aren't going to do it this year. And that is that you know the current parliamentarian, despite the immense pressure she has faced, uh, mostly from the left right now, is is very well respected. The first female parliamentarian, um, you know, they pretty much trust her to make a decision based on the letter and spirit of the existing budget law. Of course, they're going to try again on immigration, but but the truth is, privately, Democrats very much cons- committed to this kind of knew this was going to happen. So you know, the rhetoric in public might be frustration, but in private, it's like, oh man, of course. So. I hope that helps. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting, I I think I'm correct about this, that on the occasion in the past where the uh, sitting parliamentarian was fired uh, because of dissatisfaction with a ruling, it it simply elevated the deputy deputy parliamentarian, who I think had been the full-on parliamentarian before that. It didn't really demonstrate. I mean, these people are apparently genuinely committed to the letter of uh, of whatever complicated text determines their jobs and their rulings as opposed to being any kind of political weather vane, right? Firing one, you just bring another one off the bench who's similarly disposed. Absolutely. I mean, these people take their jobs very seriously. And, you know, even a hint of real partisanship. I mean, let's say uh, some hypothetical parliamentarian quashed immigration reform and made some political comment about immigration reform in the process. I mean, both parties would want to fire that person, but it wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? They really keep it straight on the middle of the plate. Yeah. And first of all, we, I, we have gone so far without saying the name of the parliamentarian. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. And my understanding is that you, uh, a reporter who uh, leaves very few stones unturned uh, in the Senate chamber, don't after all these years, don't really have any access to uh, or the ability to kind of source Elizabeth McDonough, right? The, this is, these are people who kind of, they don't like, they really don't talk to the press. I mean, uh, yes. And for that reason, we don't often use her, her name because she's, she's not a public figure to us, right? Mm. I, I mean, we take our jobs pretty seriously. A lot of people read our stories, you know, she gets a lot of vitriol on social media. So I've actually shied away from using her name just because, again, not a public figure, not elected, uh, basically a civil servant. Uh, and as far as sourcing is concerned, you're right. I mean, it's a little bit like a Supreme Court justice. Like if one of them started texting my reporters back, I'd be a little concerned because they're not supposed to be political animals, you know? Yeah, although I just got through listening to a terrific Meghan Chakrabarty hosted uh, edition of On Point uh, talking about whether or not the justices are as apolitical uh, as they sometimes claim to be uh, and as we sometimes want them to be. Um, this this one, and, and I, I, I have my doubts, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, <laughs> I mean, look, all just to say, you know, Elizabeth McDonough doesn't not talk, but 
she doesn't talk on the record. Does, right. it, does that make sense? Yes. Oh, no, I, I totally get that. But I mean, I have my doubts about the Supreme Court justices being apolitical. Uh, I, I know they want us to think that they are. Um, but this seems real, right? I mean, Elizabeth McDonough is as likely to fend off an attempt to destroy Obamacare based on what she sees as solid interpretation of existing kind of stare decisis uh, within the Senate as she is to uh, to bat away the, the goals of, of Chuck Schumer to get immigration bill uh, an immigration reform into a reconciliation bill, right? She she really doesn't seem to favor either side. She she favors her job. Hundred percent would agree with that. And and I mean that in itself is kind of remarkable. I mean here we are. I mean we, we you know people keep saying, well, who is this person? Uh, this person isn't elected. This person has so much power, uh, but. I assume from a certain point of view, it's good that this person has so much power in a situation where absolutely every question seems to come down to, to naked political you know, hand fighting. Uh, it, it's a remarkable thing in a way that there's this person who kind of just won't play that game. Absolutely. You know, I, I would liken it a little bit to, um, you know, the debate over the filibuster in which for example, you know, a, a liberal partisan might say, let's get rid of the filibuster so we can pass everything we need to right now with a simple majority. Well, you know, the next time Republicans win control, they're going to try to unravel everything you just did with their simple majority. And Elizabeth McDonough, the parliamentarian as a position, is a similar bulwark against the whims of one particular party in power whipping things too far in that direction. You know, if she started doing whatever the party in power wanted, then all we would be seeing is reconciliation bills because it would be an end around the filibuster. All right. So we're going to stop there. But uh, Alana Shore, it's great to talk to you. Uh, Congress editor at Politico, former Jeopardy champion, 2018, I believe. Watch out, Matt Omodio. Um, And uh, thanks very much for spending time with us today. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a little break here, a very short break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about newspapers, a newspaper that a lot of you know. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
All right. I'm going to um, do a somewhat a longer introduction than usual, just partly because we're troubleshooting a problem, uh, making sure that David Fulkenflick, uh, NBR, NPR's media correspondent, uh, can hear us. Uh, so while we work that out, I'm going to explain a little bit. I have to anyway sort of explain whatever baggage or conflicts of interest might surround me in connection with the thing we're going to talk about. So uh, first thing I have to tell you is that from 1976 to 1995, a period of 19 years, starting the day after my graduation from college, I was a full-time employee of the Hartford Current. At that time, uh, it was uh, a pretty big organization. I think there were about a thousand employees when I arrived there. Now, they weren't all involved in news gathering, uh, but it was it was a big place. It was absolutely the state of Connecticut's preeminent news gathering organization. Newspapers had much, much bigger, much far bigger staffs than any other kind of journalistic organization. Uh, and uh, to make matters uh, even more emphatic, the current news gathering organization was way bigger than any other newspapers. Um, so it was a big deal. Uh, and I, as I say, worked there for 19 years, and then I stayed on as a freelance columnist uh, until, I don't know, 2019, I think. <laughs> I'm not really sure. And now I'm with Hearst. Hearst wound up, the Hearst Connecticut Media Organization wound up kind of cherry-picking uh, an awful lot of people from the ranks of the Hartford Current. But for a long, long time, the Hartford Current really was you know, really the central nervous system of journalism in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, anyway, so those are some of my conflicts of interest. Obviously, I should also say that some of the Hartford Current's functions, as it has uh, shrunk in the way that we're about to talk about, have defaulted over to public media and to public radio. So here I am in the middle of a pledge drive, no less. Uh, and, and we are also probably going to make uh, reference to the fact that that nonprofit journalism, whether it's this station of the Connecticut Mirror or CT News Junkie has picked up some of the slack. But, okay, I think we're ready to go here. Uh, and uh, so joining us now is David Fulkenflick. The reason we're doing this is that in 2009, uh, David did a piece called Imagining a City Without Its Daily Newspaper. And he started with a Hartford Current as kind of a case in point. Uh, so first of all, David, welcome back to our show. It's been a while. Hey, Colin, it's been a minute for sure. <laughs> okay. So um, you had occasion uh, recently uh, through the miracle that we know as Twitter to sort of revisit this uh, this piece, but maybe just start back in 2009. What were you going at? What were you going at and why use the Hartford Current to, to make the point? Well, so fair question. Uh, 2009 was important for two moments, one of which was the realization that the news industry was in trouble because of the financial turmoil and the incredible global financial crisis. And that, you know, from my standpoint, somebody who covers media, my standpoint as a journalist inherently, you know, I think it's important for the functioning of democracy and the functioning of society and that the crisis was really going to hit journalism hard. But secondly, by then it was already clear that news organizations didn't just have to make cuts during times of financial stress, that they were doing it regardlessly. You know, regardless, they were essentially almost on a series of endless cuts at many of the nation's important uh, local and metro news organizations. I should really make clear newspapers, which I thought of and still often think of as the engines that drive news cycles in communities. Hartford seemed to me to be an important city uh, in a small state. Uh, you know, it's a state capital as well as a significant city for the state. At that time, I think uh, my research showed that there were four. Fortune 50 companies based there. 
you know, that's a huge corporate center at that time as well. And I thought, my God, what would happen to our understanding of what's going on in greater Hartford, uh, central Connecticut, uh, were the current to go away? And I found it really moving. I found it really, you know, I found things that I expected and I found things that didn't occur to me. All right. So let's hear one of the voices from that piece, uh, Mark Pazniokas, uh, who was, well, I don't know if he was then. He definitely is now the dean of the uh, Connecticut uh, Political Reporting Establishment, uh, the dean of the political press corps here in Connecticut. He, he was a Hartford Current employee at the time, but not for much longer. And here he is in your piece. You lose a sense of community. If everybody is looking at dozens or hundreds of different news sources, you don't have the common point of reference that, not to be corny, but are an important part of of democracy and community. Right. In some ways, Paz is is predicting there, you know, one of the things that's happened, which is kind of a fragmentation of source, uh, I mean, a fragmentation of news source that contributes, I think, to everybody having these competing realities. We now feel as though, you know, different consumers of news are talking about completely different fact sets. And, and, And he's arguing there, David, that one of the reasons that might happen would be if there was no longer a small group of highly trusted news sources. I think that's right. And I think uh, he wasn't wrong. I think that you lose a sense of common ground. I think in sense, you lose a sense of self as well as a sense of community. The idea that you're part of something larger that you can debate about inside a large tent, as opposed to being different camps altogether. And that's that's a real loss. You also lose veteran journalists like uh, Mark Pazniokas, and you lose a, a sense of not only the muscle knowledge on how to cast stories, how to report things out, but just the inherent knowledge of what's happened in the past. You know, a year later, I did a story about uh, your current senator and at that time your uh, attorney general, state attorney general Richard Blumenthal, uh, who was running for Senate. And the New York Times raised questions about statements he made that distorted the extent of his military service. Well, two things emerged from that story. The the undercurrent of the story to me that was interesting was the extent to which the press had at times on its own dime misrepresented uh, now Senator Blumenthal's record and that he kind of didn't correct it, uh, I think, properly and insistently and went along with it, even as there were certain moments where he himself on his own misspoke, misspoke. Misspoke. But the second thing that was fascinating was the extent to which all these political reporters I talked to had been laid off or bought out, that news organizations in Connecticut, uh, significant papers, uh, and not just the current, the Connecticut Post, uh, other papers around the state had essentially gotten rid of reporters who could do that kind of reporting. Uh, and therefore, reporters were scrambling just to cover what was said in front of them. And didn't have the expectation of actually having any knowledge to bring to bear on, on, on things they were covering themselves. And I think that's inherently a problem, too. Right. Although there's some real problems with that time story, which I should say was written by a person who subsequently went to work for the the lead media consultant on Linda McMahon's Republican I think Senate. I think that's right. And I think that 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 had Connecticut's own press corps been stronger, both in terms of its own 
fact, factual basis in reporting on Blumenthal and in responding to that Times piece, everyone in Connecticut would have been better served. Right. One of the things I liked about your piece, David, at the time, um, I wasn't at public radio at the time, but uh, one of the things that I thought you you got right that a lot of people miss is it isn't just politics. It isn't just sort of the standard ruck of public affairs. There's a lot of other things that a newspaper or a newspaper used to do and big high-functioning newspapers still do, just including, you know, you cited cultural coverage. I, I, when I worked at the Hartford Current, the theater critic, Malcolm Johnson, was so powerful that if he went down one set of stairs instead of taking the elevator at one th- very well-known uh, theater called The Good Speed, which is where Annie and lots of other uh, famous uh, musicals and uh, had started their, their productions, if Malcolm took a different route out of the building, there would be a panic in the building. The executive director uh, of the theater would be calling the current saying, what's happened? He didn't come down the stairs. That means he hates it. We're in a lot of trouble. It was sort of that big. And, and you know, Malcolm was a good example of somebody who was extremely erudite, a real kind of renaissance guy who, you know, even if you didn't agree with his review, it started a conversation in the community. And, and there's a way in which, you know, a high-functioning newspaper, if it's covering all aspects of life in its community, starts a lot of conversations, even if not everybody agrees with everything it says as subtle truth. And to me, David, that's one of the things that's also getting lost here. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I, you know, going over this uh, story, both for my tweets the other day and in preparing to talk to you today, you know, I was struck by how much good work the current had done. They had been out in front on uh, a corrupt mayor who had been indicted on bribery charges. They had uh, done stories about deployment of mentally ill soldiers to Iraq from Connecticut. They had uh, helped bring down the governor to, you know, like these are important political stories. But, you know, I talked to the marketing director for the Hartford stage at the time, a woman named Julie Stapp. And, and she's, this was her quote. She said, even a bad review is important to us, frankly, because it still brings awareness to the community about what we're doing here at the theater. That is, it's part of the conversation. It's part of, you know, they are affected by it in terms of sales, yes. But if people don't know that a, uh, a production is on, they can't even come to make their own judgment, whether to uh, embrace or to uh, reject the assessment by the critic at the Hartford Current. If there's no critic to do that, I think that's true for restaurant critics, you know, for family restaurants that open up. They need that kind of attention being brought to them and perhaps a seriousness of purpose. Uh, you know, uh, this is a, an example, but I, you know, my disclosure here, I, for a decade, worked for the Baltimore Sun, which is a sister paper of the Hartford Current under various uh, corporate ownerships. Uh, I did a piece on that was critical of a local investigative reporter for a TV station back when I was the local media reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And he was ticked off and we talked about it and we heard each other out. And over time, he would call me and sort of talk through journalism choices with me. And he became uh, an important source for me uh, in my waning time at the Sun, uh, blowing a whistle on what he thought were unethical practices by his bosses during a political campaign. He appreciated that somebody was taking it seriously. And I think time and again, that's what a newspaper can bring because they typically have uh, or historically have had a, a critical mass of people that people develop knowledge and people develop some expertise in what they're covering. So last question. Uh, so the the guy, one of the two guys who caught that corrupt mayor uh, was an ex- obscure uh, fellow named Jeff Cohen, who uh, after four years now is our news director here at Connecticut Public <laughs> Radio, uh, is about to go back to reporting. He's an amazing reporter. I can't wait yeah. uh, to watch him worrying at stories again. Uh, Pazniokas, who we heard in that clip, he's with the Connecticut Mirror now, a nonprofit that you know obviously specializes in covering public policy uh, here 
in the state of Connecticut. CT News Junkie, another uh, nonprofit, has risen up and plays an important role. Uh, Paul Bass founded the New Haven Independent, which has a national reputation uh, as you know, uh, uh, as a source of really, really high functioning and high quality urban local journalism. So. Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, we're back to Paz's question, which is if only if the only people who look at the Connecticut Mirror are people who have a really specific interest in public policy as opposed to a general interest in everything, maybe there's a problem there. But what's your overall take on the way nonprofit journalism has tried to step into the gap? I admire it. I support it. I'm part of it, right? I, I left uh, uh, newspapering to join NPR and public broadcasting, and I, I'm, I'm proud of that choice. Uh, I think that, you know, if you look at places like Los Angeles, uh, Southern California Public Radio, KPCC is the second largest newsroom in L.A. to the L.A. Times. And the L.A. Times is now owned by essentially a fairly benevolent billionaire who's, who's trying to find a sustainable model for that, but is not looking for that to be a source of his wealth. Uh, I, I think what Pazniok has joined, uh, the Connecticut Mirror, uh, the political junkie, the independent New Haven are really important elements of of the news ecosystem in Connecticut, they don't replace what newspapers, including but not limited to the current provided for Connecticut. And I think that particularly as things have to be narrow cast in, in digital media to, to break through a lot of the chatter at times, it, it means it's hard to replace what's lost and it's hard to sort of set the table for common discussion and argument. If you look at what's happening in Chicago right now, there is a plan, a proposal that looks likely to take place by the end of the year for Chicago Public Media, which is essentially the parent of WBEZ Public Radio in Chicago, to take over the Chicago Sun-Times. Not to change it, not to jettison people out the window. They hope to add 30 to 40 more people, but to create a really big newsroom. And you've seen a lot of foundation support for that. Why is that? Well, I think it's significant measure. It's because uh, Alden uh, Global Capital uh, the parent company, the Tribune company now, uh, Tribune Publishing now, uh, threatens to cut back the already severely depleted Chicago Tribune even further. And folks in the not-for-profit world are saying, how can we sustain reporting so that people have an understanding of the world? People can take pride and pleasure in what one another is doing, have some knowledge of that. People can hold public figures and major actors and public officials accountable for what they do. And the current model isn't going to do it. Now, Alden, as, as your listeners probably well know, is also now the owner of the Hartford Current. And when we saw that... Uh, I saw the tweet from your, you know, the woman working there saying that basically they're down to 36 people and not every single one of those people is a reporter. Uh, that seemed like not just a diminished and constricted vision of what a newspaper can be, but essentially somebody trying to eke out the maximum possible subscription rates for the minimum possible expenditures. And, yeah. and, and that makes you fearful. Yeah. No, Alden is like the Borg or, or like the aliens in Independence Day. I mean, they, they're just flying around the skies, grabbing things and draining the life force out of it. I do want to say some of those 36 people, including Daniela Altamari, are terrific journalists. And, you know, they are maybe like the French Foreign Legion or something. There's not too many people left in the fort. Uh, but the ones who are there are really good. They're brave uh, and, and they're terrific. Uh, and we're lucky but to your to, point, yeah. that's usually at, at a point like this, when you're cut back that severely, that deeply, 
they're doing it in spite of ownership rather than because of it. Right. And that was not always the case. Exactly. All right. We got to go. Pledge. You know how that works, David. Uh, David Folkenflick is NPR's media correspondent. Uh, and yeah, I didn't set this up as a kind of segue into a pledge break. It seems like this nakedly opportunistic and self-massaging thing to do. But the truth is we do need you to support uh, our model here, which is not based on advertising or anything like that. And we'd like it for you to support the show during the show because it helps us make the argument that people really care about what we on this show are doing. Please do that. All right. So uh, first of all, time to say some thank yous. Uh, first of all, thank you to you if you're making uh, a pledge here during Pledge Week and especially in connection with our show. Thanks uh, a bunch. Uh, and I also uh, want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She is, as always, the technical producer of the show. Uh, and thanks to Katie Tularski also, who is uh, helping us pull together some of the audio for today's show, the big boss, uh, Katie Tularski. And thanks also to, if, you, if you're not listening to a podcast, if you're listening to the broadcast version of our show, and we encourage people to do both and to tell their friends that this show is available as a podcast on any podcasting platform. Uh, anyway, uh, you might have heard some talk about the Unicorn Show. Well, guess what? We finally, after only four months of trying, uh, have hired our new senior producer. She is a unicorn in many wonderful ways, uh, and she was the producer of the Unicorn episode, too, Lily Tyson. So, I mean, we'll have, be having the official Lily Tyson rollout. We're going to rent uh, Dunkin' Donuts Baseball Stadium uh, and, you know, just sort of really introduce uh, Lily to the cheering public. But we're very excited that she's the new senior producer of our show. She's the producer of this episode, too. And now it's time to do the final segment. Uh, we're very, I, I'm fascinated by this. This could be an entire show. We could have done an entire episode on this. Uh, and so joining us right now is Katrine Marsal, uh, who is the author of the book, Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men. Uh, for, so first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. And, and let's begin with um, this whole idea of the rolling suitcase, the wheelie suitcase. There are kind of two different versions about when that was invented and by whom. So let's do the more well-known male-dominated narrative first. Give us that one. Yes. So this is a classic mystery of innovation. The fact that we managed to put two men on the moon before we managed to put wheels on suitcases. So officially, the rolling suitcase, the suitcase with wheels, was only invented in 1972, basically 5,000 years after the invention <laughs> of the wheel. And many economists and management thinkers have been puzzled by this. And in the official version, it was invented by a Massachusetts family man called Bernard Sadov, who one day just came up with the idea. He was in the luggage industry, so he was somebody who was paid to think about how to make luggage better. And in the beginning of the 1970s, it suddenly struck him, let's put wheels on these things. And, and I think the first ones were kind of like the ones that uh, Kathleen Turner ha has in Romancing the Stone. It's kind of an upright, it's just a normal suitcase, normally shaped suitcase that happens to have wheels on, on kind of the, the long end at the bottom. So you're basically pulling a suitcase in more or less its normal configuration. Yes. And they tipped over all the time. And I think you could even buy stabilizers for them. <laughs> and so somebody, I think it was a pilot, figured out it would work better if you kind of verticalized what was horizontal, uh, reshaped yes. the thing a little bit and put a big handle on it. 
Yeah, and that was in 1987. So that's still quite a long time after, you know, he was called Robert Plath. And that was sort of the invention of what, you know, what we now sort of think of as a, as a rolling suitcase. And it took off, you know, cabin crews started using them. And then it took off really in the 1990s. So it turns out that 4,950 uh, years after the invention of the wheel uh, was actually a little bit closer to when we got our first wheelie suitcases. We somehow or other just don't know that. Uh, help us understand. Well, so what what I discovered when working on my book, which is on gender and innovation, was that there were actually suitcases with wheels before um, 1972, but most of them were these niche products for women, because there was this really, really strong idea that no man would ever roll a suitcase. And that's actually probably the really big explanation to why it took us so long to finally put wheels on suitcases. There was this idea that a real man has to carry his own bag. And yes, there were niche products for women sort of applying this 5,000-year-old technology of the wheel to the suitcase, but they didn't really took off. And the luggage industry in general felt that you know, no man will ever roll a suitcase because that's just ridiculous. And women, well, they don't travel alone anyway. If a woman travels, it will be with a man who will then have to prove that he is a real man by carrying her bag too. Right. Actually, there's a in that, that movie, and you referenced the movie in, in your uh, own writing about this, but um, there's a scene where uh, Michael Douglas's character picks up Kathleen Turner's suitcase. They've just made an arrangement, a deal where he's going to help her. And it looks like he's going to pick up the suitcase, this rolling suitcase of hers, and walk through the jungle with it. What he does is he takes four steps towards her and wordlessly drops it next to her feet and keeps on walking. This clearly, de- this device is not worthy of his massive male attentions in exactly the way that you're suggesting. And and it makes me also think, in terms of movies of the Darjeeling Limited, where I think the first scene you see is Bill Murray playing the father of these three brothers, but he's running for a train carrying these gigantic suitcases uh, like like a man would, you know, no rolling suitcases uh, for this guy. So this, uh, as the title of your book suggests, is not an isolated occurrence, this notion that nothing really exists until it's invented for a man uh, by another man, uh, nothing really exists, uh, but in fact, it really does. Uh, and this includes, I gather, electric cars. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, the argument of the book is that these ideas of gender sort of shape innovation and also delay have delayed innovations we now take for granted. I mean, rolling suitcases, we, we now take for granted. That's what a suitcase looks like. This was a product that ended up disrupting the whole global luggage industry in the end, you know, and now it's completely natural for a man to roll his suitcase. It just took a lot longer because of this sort of just really random idea that, you know, men can't want something that's, you know, easy to to move and comfortable and and nice. Um, But another example I bring up in the book is actually electric cars. So electric cars were around already at the end of the 1800s, at the dawn of the automobile era. And pretty soon there emerged this idea that electric cars were for women because they were slower, they were very good in urban environment, not so good outside, they were safer, they were quite elegant, you you could start them from the driver's seat, you didn't have to go out and crank them going, which was very a very dangerous business. 
So soon they became marketed towards women, wealthy women, and product developed with women in mind. They were the first cars to be made with roofs because, you know, obviously a real man in his um, gasoline powered car doesn't care if he gets wet in the rain, but the women did. Um, but soon this association between femininity and electric car technology became a commercial problem for the electric car industry because then guess what happened? Men didn't want them. Mm. So it sort of held back the size of that market, which wasn't the main reason to why electric cars then disappeared and we built a world for gasoline um, powered cars, but it did contribute. So even in that sort of really big choice we made, you know, what car technology are we going to go with? Gender played quite a significant part. It it it's the whole thing is kind of fascinating, and it makes me also think about the. I worked for I guess sixteen years for a commercial radio station, and I had a show. And every once in a while, I would say, you know, I'm really starting to get a lot more women listeners than you, you usually hear on you know, commercial talk radio. And increasingly, the callers are women, and this is like a really good thing, right? And my bosses would go, Yeah, well, actually, we have a target demographic. It's men between the ages of twenty five and fifty four. So it's nice that you have women listeners, but we really don't care because our advertisers are buying our station right now, uh, buying time on our station to reach men uh, uh, in a certain age demo. And that sort of, you know, gets into the circularity of this conversation, right? If in fact, you know, there are people who want to make and sell things, and they want to make and sell them to men, and and then media companies kind of collaborate on that by having male-centric programming. And then obviously there's female-centric programming. Different stuff gets advertised on The View or whatever. Um, you, you really start to have, once again, two different segments of society with different fact sets about what kinds of things there are in the world and who invented them. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And in a way, it also maybe even doesn't commercially make sense. I mean, women are actually incredibly powerful as consumers. In the global economy, women are thought to influence around 80% of all consumer decisions. You know, it's often the woman in the family who decides, you know, what, what is going to get bought in the end. You know, that's what economic research shows. So even that commercial focus, you know, that, you know, it's not good to commercially focus on women doesn't even quite make sense. Right. Well, this uh, the whole thing is just I I have to say I, until r reading your stuff about this, I just never thought about any of this, and I certainly didn't know about the wheelie suitcase. So, uh, Katrine Marsal, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Author of the book Mother of Invention: How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men. Hopefully, we're going to fix this problem pretty soon. Uh, but uh, but we never really fix anything on public radio. We we just tell you what you need to know so you can go fix it. And now, what we're going to ask you to do. Uh, here at the end of the show is, uh, once again, some people are going to come on. I now know who the people are. Uh, it's uh, Ali and Meg, uh, and they are going to ask you to support the programming here. Uh, and particularly if this program means something to you and the way that we tackle things means something specific to you uh, and you really appreciate what we do. Uh, I, I hope that you will spend some time, just take a little bit of time out to go to ctpublic.org and make a donation or call 1-800-584-2788. Make that donation. We, we think on The Colin McEnroe Show, particularly as we enter the Lily Tyson era here, uh, and uh, we're going to be also adding some other kinds of production help, including some names you know very well. We think we might be perched on the cusp of a whole new era of the show. But it really helps us get to that new era if you listen to the people who are talking to you right now and pay attention to what they say and then act on that. It helps us so much if you support during our hour. <laughs>